Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 167, The Beginning of the End. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Rita, Jason, and Gustavo for contributing already. Canadian listeners, did you know that the Magna Carta is in town? The first stop is at the Canadian Museum of History in Ottawa, but then it's moving on to Winnipeg, Toronto, and Edmonton. You can find out where and when to view it at www.magnacartacanada.ca. Go check it out, and thanks to member Cindy for giving me a heads up on that. I'd like to fess up to something. This episode was hard to write, and it's probably why just about everyone else avoids this era. While these events are really interesting, it's very hard to find a way to keep you engaged while we're talking about characters that you've never heard about before. I mean, I could probably spend an entire episode talking about the types of bacon that Henry VIII loved to eat, and you'd be happy to hear it. Not just because bacon is awesome, but also because you already know who Henry VIII was. But for something like this, with strange names like Wolfrid and Conewolf, it gets harder. Covering unknown characters in detail without any context runs the risk of sounding like someone giving you a blow-by-blow account of their D&D game. And no one wants to hear about every last detail of your D&D campaign. Sorry, Gary. So, let's take a step back so we don't miss the forest for the trees. These episodes, as well as the next few coming up, are actually really critical to British history, and almost nobody knows about them. This season, season four, is called Anglo-Saxon Ascendancy, because we've been seeing mighty kings like Offa, Aethelbald, and Conewulf acquire vast amounts of power in Britain that enable them to nearly become the first kings of England. Their hegemonies were so big and impressive that we have one Mercian leader getting into arguments with Charlemagne and another claim the title of emperor. But we are reaching the end of that era. The Viking armies are coming. And the great kingdoms of Northumbria and Mercia, which could have functioned as bulwarks against continental aggression a hundred years ago, are collapsing under their own weight. The line of Ida in Northumbria had largely died out about a century ago. The Eidingas were fierce and effective leaders, but they also tended to die young, and sometimes without children. And now with their end, the warnings of Bede regarding the weaknesses of the Northern Kingdom are starting to look like prophecy. For the last century, Northumbria has been racked by civil war, with five families enthusiastically murdering each other in their attempt to claim the throne. There are too many kings of Northumbria to count who met an untimely death, many times without kids. And it might lead you to wonder whether the kingdom might have been strong enough to stop the Norse invasion if King Aethelred I of Northumbria hadn't been murdered, or if any of the other kings and claimants hadn't also been murdered. In Mercia, we have seen the kingdom acquire a degree of power and control in the south that hasn't been seen since the days of Rome, but it's beginning to run aground. And when they collapse, they will do so with incredible speed. By the time the Norsemen land on our shores in force, they'll be unable to stop them. This collapse has been coming for generations. Had King Aethelbald not slept with countless nuns, 
Offa might not have been worried about rival claimants to the throne. Had King Offa not killed his extended family and disinherited any child born out of wedlock, there might not have been a succession crisis upon the death of his son. Had Emperor Conewulf and the Archbishop not fought so heavily over two pieces of land, Conewulf's heir might not have been murdered. And if there was peace and an heir, would Mercia have been strong enough to form England? Would it have been strong enough to beat the Norse army? There are all sorts of moments where you can look at this story and say, if that didn't happen, this entire thing would have played out differently. And when we tell history this way, it reads like a string of unlikely coincidences. All too often when we read histories, or God help us watch the History Channel, we're given the impression of history being decided by a few important people in power. That those on the throne or on the battlefield have been the true shapers of the world. Or perhaps it was shaped by divine providence. History is often told as a series of events without social context. And with that perspective, it's natural to look at what happened and feel like we're being guided by the hands of men who are like demigods. Or maybe just guided by God himself. That's what Thomas Carlyle, the creator of the great man theory, meant when he wrote in 1841, quote, This history of the world is but the biography of great men, end quote. But what I've been trying to show you with the BHP is that these great men aren't the axis upon which the world turns. It's the culture that matters. The individual leaders are only working within their own social constraints. They don't define them. The great man theory is now used as a slur among most historians. And it's why I'm often stunned when I hear people say, I take a great man theory approach to history. It's a bit like saying, I believe in the white man's burden. That is not a thing. And we know better now. So here we are in the first quarter of the ninth century with Northumbria in chaos. And now we're seeing Mercia begin to run aground. The History Channel might point to decisions of individual kings as a cause for this collapse. But longtime listeners of the BHP know that we've seen these cracks forming in Anglo-Saxon society for a very long time. And they're not the fault of any one person. The failures of Anglo-Saxon society lie not with a particular king or archbishop, but with the culture itself. And when the continent comes to our shores, the great warrior societies of Eastern Britain will be unable to stop them due to the cultural incentives that they created, and then the resulting self-inflicted wounds that we've been seeing occur for decades. The choices made by these kings only matter insofar as they're carrying out the cultural push that's driving their societies. And ultimately, that's why we talk so much about culture and motivations in this show, and also why we sometimes dive heavily into major events. It isn't because I'm geeking out. It's because these events build upon each other and tell the story of how we ended up here. They illuminate the culture and also signal changes within it. If we don't know about these events and the cultural pressures behind them, it might be tempting to see history as a story of a few powerful men. But we know better than that. And to help guide you through the next few episodes, here are some of those cultural causes that we've talked about that help lead to this collapse. As the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms became more prosperous, their populations grew, as did their aristocracies. This resulted in the downward pressure on an individual station that we spoke about in episode 124. Just through the sheer economic forces at play, 
very few people would be able to do as well as their parents. Anglo-Saxon life was grappling with runaway wealth inequality, and it affected everyone. Even at the top, noble kids, almost across the board, did worse than their parents. There were only so many spots for kings, thanes, churls, and other nobles. And so when the fifth son of a king wasn't able to become a king himself, he very well might end up becoming a thane, thus forcing even the firstborn son of the current thane to be pushed down in turn. It was a cascading effect. The solution that many nobles seemed to turn to was the church. However, the expansion of wealth and power of the church eventually became a problem in itself. The church pressured kings to offer them book land, which permanently removed sections of the king's lands and gave it to the clergy. And once that began, other nobles began to demand the same privileges that the church was getting. And considering that the members of the church were often extended family members of the nobility, it's not hard to see why they would demand that. Why should a fifth son get a permanent land deed when a first son, who is a battle-tested thane, was unable to get the same rights? That's not right. So suddenly, huge chunks of the king's lands were being divested and given out to his supporters and influential families, in addition to the properties that were already being given away to the church. So, with this shift, it wasn't just the other nobles that were experiencing downward pressure. Now even kings were generally less powerful than their predecessors, controlling less lands, and also largely unable to extort obedience through the threat of eviction. The church was also growing in power so quickly that it soon was holding a full one-quarter of the economy. This inevitably led to conflict between the church institutions and the reigning nobility, who, despite the increasing regional prosperity, were no doubt starting to feel like resources were becoming scarce due to the fact that lands were being divested and also the social downward pressure that was occurring. And the best way to ensure that you would do as well or better than your forebears in this world was to take the property of others, or at least force others to pay tribute. And for kings, this was a necessity. A king's ability to pay his war bands was a life-or-death matter. So we see increasing levels of interkingdom violence. Further, as these dynasties took root, it was no longer the best person who ruled. Instead, it was often the person from the right family. This was a problem for many people, since everyone else was getting forced further and further down, and the only position that really mattered was the king. So in Northumbria, once the clear line of succession began to break down, we see rival families beginning to fight and kill each other for the right to rule, leading to the breakdown of Northumbrian dominance and shockingly frequent civil wars. Meanwhile, in Mercia, we see them take an equally disastrous path. For the Mercians, the strength of a person's claim came not just through the father, but also through his mother. This was probably initially intended to build alliances and develop a consensus from the various powerful families in Mercia. But by the time of King Aethelbald, it was clear that this did not come without its problems. King Aethelbald, recognizing the importance of the ancestry of both parents, and also recognizing that many noble women were forcibly cloistered into nunneries, began having sex with nuns. However, Apparently, none of his offspring appeared to have been adults by the time that he died. So when the new king Offa took the throne, he sought to disinherit the likely small army of bastards that would have served as a rival for his own son, Egfrith. 
So, he acquired a papal order stating that only children from married parents would be eligible for rule. And then he carried out a brutal policy of killing any rival claimants to the throne, meaning his extended family. Again, this makes perfect sense within the cultural context of the time. The wealth inequality within Anglo-Saxon Britain was extreme, and Offa was doing what he needed to do in order to ensure that his son would not be touched by it. However, Egfrith died childless, and that was a disaster. Anyone with a valid claim to the throne had already been killed. And so that's how we ended up with Emperor Conewulf, who, despite any claims he made, appears to have been from the ousted royal dynasty of the Hwissa, a minor subkingdom. His rule, despite its successes, didn't carry with it the auspices of an ancient line with a clear line of succession. Instead, what we see here is a young dynasty, without a clear heir, thanks to the murder of his only son, which may well have been ordered by the highest member of the English church. So whatever authority he may have gained through personal accomplishments would likely die with him unless he could produce an heir. And there were plenty of rival noble families who were likely sharpening their swords and looking to avoid the poverty that awaited them if they couldn't effectively scramble to the top of the heap. And then you had the Archbishop of Canterbury, a man from a noble family who, if he could accomplish his goals, could find himself controlling a quarter of the entire economy of the Southern Sea, and who had absolutely no incentive to promote mercy and stability. To the contrary, instability in Mercia was to his advantage. He could get more lands that way. It all connects. It all makes sense when you look at the context of why the people were doing what they were doing. Ethelbald was a product of his environment and was responding to the pressures and the incentives that existed within his culture. If you look at just his actions, he looks like a pervert. But when you look at the world that he lived in, his actions make sense. Offa's actions make him look like a serial killer unless you look at the cultural context that he was working within. And when we inevitably see the terror from the north arrive on our shores, and the mighty English kingdoms of Mercia and Northumbria are unable to stem the tide, if you're just looking at the events alone, it may seem like a failure of leadership. Or it might appear to be genius generalship on the part of the invading forces. But actually, the instability that the invading armies were able to take advantage of had been developing for generations. And we've been seeing it play out right in front of us. So that's why we're talking about these things. Because here, right here, with a grouchy archbishop and an emperor who's at the end of his rope, we're seeing the beginning of the end. The chickens are coming home to roost. And I know I spend a lot of time talking about these fights between the nobility and the clergy in Anglo-Saxon Britain. But these fights between the two main power structures are something that has far-reaching effects for the island, and are something that isn't going away. I mean... Many of you are probably familiar with King Henry II's famous conflict with Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, a conflict that would end with a gang of French knights murdering the Archbishop. Well, that story is usually talked about in a tone of, can you believe this happened? But when we look at the history of the island and how the clergy and nobility treated each other, I think the more apt question is, can you believe this didn't happen more often? That's why I like to highlight these events. Not only are they fun to talk about, but they give a sense of continuity and growing culture 
and also a clear sense of the growing antipathy between the two institutions. That conflict is something that sets Britain apart from most other Christian states of the time. Many kingdoms were remarkably obedient and close to the church. But from its early days, even under Pope Gregory the Great and St. Augustine, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms required a slow hand and an easy touch. And even when they were given that degree of freedom, you still had open conflict between the church's infrastructure and the English ruling classes. Not only that, but sometimes you had the Pope siding with not his own subordinates, but with the English kings. That's remarkable when you think about it. And that brings us to where we last left off. With Archbishop Wolfrid overreaching and discovering, probably to his surprise, that he wasn't as powerful as he thought he was. And he was turfed out by Emperor Conewulf and his new friend, Pope Paschal I. So... Now that Emperor Conewulf was triumphant and Wilfrid was removed from power, what was next? He had a whole host of issues that could use his attention. He had the ancient enemy of Northumbria that was consolidating power under its new king. He had another ancient enemy of Wessex gathering power under King Egbert. And actually, Egbert was particularly troubling since he was stretching his dominion even into Cornish lands. Then Conewulf had the Franks under Emperor Louis the Pious. And while Louis hadn't done anything directly against him or Mercia, Frankish international interventionism wasn't out of the realm of possibility. If Louis was anything like his father, Francia was a potential problem. Conewulf also had the issue of Vikings. The Danes had recently evicted Charlemagne from some of the northern territories, and they weren't showing signs of slowing down. And then you have internal issues. Kent was still a bit rowdy. The Mercian economy was doing well for now, but you can't guarantee that that would last forever. And Conewulf was part of a new dynasty, so there were probably rival families who wanted to try their hand at rule, especially since his son and heir was now dead. Maybe he should try and make a new heir. But he was also getting up there in age. Was he too old for that? He probably was, considering the fact that he was an elderman back in the days of King Offa. So if he couldn't have kids... What could he do to ensure that his dynasty would maintain its control in Mercia? There were all sorts of issues that demanded his attention now that Wolfred was dealt with. And with all these possibilities laid out before him, he did what any English ruler would do in his position. He attacked the Welsh. Yep, history like this is why my Aunt Canewen is a staunch Welsh nationalist. So, in 818... Taking advantage of a few years of peace between Mercia and Canterbury, Emperor Conewulf marshaled his warbands and harried the Welsh of Devon. That's actually a long way for him to go. Devon was the southwestern kingdom of Wales. It wasn't Powys, which was right on its border. And that makes me wonder what the plan was there, and what the instigating effect was that led to the invasion. But whatever the case, on that year, the Mercians were, quote, harrying, end quote, southern Wales. Which almost sounds cute. My dog used to like to harry the neighborhood chickens. But the truth is, Mercia was marauding through the land, seizing, burning, assaulting, and killing the local people. Harrying was not pleasant, despite how clean and sanitized the word might sound. After that, three years passed without much to comment on. And then, in 821, Conewulf headed up a council in London. And he invited Wolfred. Yeah! 
Only about six years from his victory over the archbishop, Conewulf invited his nemesis to a council. Granted, it was only a minor council. The huge ones of the earlier age had passed. But still, he was invited. What was happening there? Well, for reasons that will become clear later in this episode, I suspect that Conewulf recognized that he was getting up there in age and was concerned about a future succession crisis. He didn't have a male heir. And while he did have a brother, that was not a clear line of succession. His brother would probably run into a fair amount of challengers, and he might even face a civil war if he were to claim the throne after Conewulf's death. But there was one way to shore up his claim. The same way that Offa did with his son Egfrith. Consecration. If Cholwulf, brother of Conewulf, was consecrated, any challengers wouldn't just be defying the will of the emperor. They would be defying God. That's serious business. The only trouble with that is that you need an archbishop to be consecrated. And right now, there was no archbishop in Canterbury. Consequently, some scholars argue that Wolfrid was invited to this council because Conewulf was hoping to consecrate his brother as his successor. And that makes sense. Reinstituting Wolfrid would probably be easier than finding a whole new archbishop of Canterbury especially considering the political climate of the 9th century. Now, it is entirely possible that there are other reasons for why you would do this. All sorts of stuff could have happened that wasn't recorded. But based upon what was recorded, this narrative makes the most sense to me. But whatever the case, Wolfrid was invited to the council in 821, despite the fact that he acted so outrageously that he was ousted from his seat. This was going to be awkward. And as the council began, the animosity was out in the open for all to see. Emperor Conewulf immediately demanded that the archbishop pay him a fine of 120 pounds. Some of you might be thinking that's not all that bad, and it's less than what most people in London spend on the tube every month. But you have to remember how much inflation we've dealt with over the last about 1,200 years. Conversions from this period are hard to work out. We don't have a medieval Alan Greenspan tracking index prices for us. Though, if we did, he probably would just tell us to not worry about the Vikings and insist that Rome was going to retake the West any day now. But even if we are conservative in our estimates of money equivalency, 120 pounds in 821 would be about a half million quid in modern money. Ouch. And that was just Emperor Comwolf's opening volley. Remember all those gifts of land that were given to the archbishop? Those gifts that Wolfred happily accepted before turning around and launching an attack on the Mercian leadership? Conewulf remembered. And he remembered that the archbishop was obsessed with land ownership. So what better way to hurt him than to take back some of the lands? Conewulf demanded that Wolfred hand over an estate of 300 hides of land. If you remember, a hide of land was a parcel of land big enough to support a household. That means that the emperor demanded that Wolfred hand over the equivalent of 300 tax-paying families. And he added that if Wolfred refused any of his demands, Mercia would simply take everything from the former archbishop and exile him from the country. And Conewulf promised him that not even letters from the Pope or Emperor Louis the Pious of Francia could save him. This was an Anglo-Saxon mic drop. And I wish we had more details on it. 
What I really want are in-court cameras, because this must have been an incredibly tense moment. Six years earlier, Wolfred was at the top of his game, and had played his hand in the strongest manner possible. He was formidable, powerful, and at least judging from the record, extremely proud. But he had been bested by Emperor Conewolf, and now he was being publicly humbled. I'm sure that there were some clergy and nobility present at the council who were wondering if you would accept the emperor's demands with humility, or if you would be the same Wolfred he had been years before and start swinging back. Amazingly, Wolfred chose a middle ground. He wisely accepted Conewulf's offer and was returned to his see. However, he wanted a caveat. He wanted the charges against him lifted. You know, the charges that Professor Richard North argues were charges of conspiring to kill Conewulf's son. He also wanted Conewulf to ensure that Wolfred would be, quote, innocent before the Pope, end quote. Finally, if Conewulf could not accomplish these things within a reasonable amount of time, Wolfred wanted a refund of the money. Can you believe this guy? After forging land deeds, disobeying the emperor and two popes, and probably conspiring to murder the crown prince, even after all of that, he was given a second chance if he would just pay a fine. But he would only agree to pay it if the emperor would guarantee a refund in the case that the pope refuses to absolve him of his murder charges. Wolfred, man. What can I say about him that hasn't already been said about FIFA? Astoundingly, Conewulf must have been eager to reach an accord, because he accepted Wolfred's counteroffer. Again, this is part of why some scholars think that Conewulf must have felt like he needed an Archbishop of Canterbury. Because considering all that Wolfred had already definitely done, combined with what he may possibly have done, granting Wolfred a money-back guarantee seems strange, unless the restored Archbishop had some sort of leverage. And consecration could definitely be that leverage. And get this, not only did he agree, but Conewulf's charters with the Archbishop resumed. More is going on here than the record is telling us. Of course, Although the archbishop backed down, this conflict wasn't really resolved. According to the record, it continued to be an issue for another four years. Though, for as bad as it was, there's no indication that the pope got involved this time. Maybe he finally threw his hands up and decided to stay out of it. And then, later on that same year, in 821, after resolving his issues with Archbishop Wolfred, Conewulf died. He was at Basingwork in Flintshire, at the northern end of Watts Dyke, which has led some scholars to suspect that he was probably preparing for another invasion of Wales. By the time of his death, Conewulf had reigned for a quarter of a century. His empire controlled vast portions of the south, and while he had a bad relationship with Canterbury, much like Offa had decades earlier, it didn't slow him down. Conewulf was a wise ruler giving way when he needed to, but also willing to stand his ground and even press his advantage when the opportunity presented itself. And while he didn't have a firstborn son available to claim his throne, he had done a good job of placing his family in powerful positions. As we spoke about in the members podcast, Mercia was significantly more accepting of female leadership than its other Anglo-Saxon neighbors. Consequently, we see Conewulf's daughter, 
Abbess Quinthrith of Minster and Thanet, refusing to abandon her properties simply because her father had died, much to Archbishop Wolfred's consternation. But she was her father's daughter. Now, Wolfred was arguing that the property should pass to him upon Conewolf's death, and claimed that there was an agreement to that effect. But are we really going to take the word of a forger? Apparently, Quenthrith and the Mercian nobility weren't, and so formal ownership of the monastery rested with her, not with the archbishop. Meanwhile, Mercia needed a leader, and so Cholwulf, brother of Conewulf, stepped up and took the throne as king. Apparently, the title of emperor was a bit of a fad. But you have to feel a little bit bad for the new king Cholwulf. Not only did his brother cast a pretty large shadow, but the heir apparent had been martyred and was now being revered as a saint. That's a tough comparison for anyone to deal with. Further, there was a lot of unfinished business for him to deal with. You had the fight with Wales that his brother seemed to be intent on pursuing. You had a really pushy Archbishop of Canterbury. And on top of all of that, a growing threat across the North Sea. Remember, Denmark had evicted Charlemagne from northern Frisia, and then Charlemagne started to pay off various Viking chiefs to avoid further losses. Things on the continent were getting out of control. How long before this creeped up to the shores of Britain? This next period, the post-Combwolf period, was not good for Mercia. In fact, scholars talk about this era as a period of disastrous instability in Mercia. It's going to get bad. And the initial problem really did come out of nowhere. Scholars argue that Athelstan of East Anglia, a subkingdom of Mercia at the time of Comulf's death, took note of the new King Cholwulf's weakness and was clever enough to make his move before the emperor's body was even cold. He immediately began pushing for East Anglia autonomy and began minting his own coins. Cholwulf didn't even have time to mourn. If he hesitated, he could lose the Mercian hegemony. And so he marshaled his troops and marched on East Anglia. We aren't given a blow-by-blow -blow account, but Athelstan of East Anglia was quickly driven out, the coins returned to normal, and Mercia once again controlled its eastern neighbor. For now. But King Cholwulf was still in a tough spot. The record appears to indicate that Mercia was in a period of intense instability during this regnal transition. East Anglia rebelled. Sure, it was unsuccessful, but it was still a rebellion. And it looks like at least parts of Kent were also in rebellion against their Mercian overlords. Again, this is a period that's poorly documented, but it looks like the Mercian Imperium built by Conewulf was breaking in the early days of his brother's reign. And so something needed to be done. Taking a page from the Frankish kings, as well as from King Offa, Cholwulf sought to be consecrated. And you might be thinking, wait, wasn't he already consecrated? Wasn't that why Wolfrid was let back into the club? Well, it definitely looks like that was the plan. However, Emperor Conewulf died really soon after the agreement was made. Consequently, the consecration never happened. But Cholwulf still needed it. After all, it's never a bad idea to have the endorsement of the Almighty. But while Canterbury once again had an archbishop, that archbishop was Wolfrid. So that's a problem. Given his long-standing conflict with the ruling dynasty of Mercia, you would expect Wolfrid to refuse. 
or possibly be directly involved in a revolt. But we're told that on the 17th of September, 822, Archbishop Wolfrid consecrated King Cholwulf of Mercia. That's kind of a surprising move, and I would love to know how it came about and why he agreed to it. And this is typically where I say, unfortunately, we may never know. But this time we actually do know. Can you believe that? We have a charter that was signed and witnessed on the same day where King Chilwulf gave the archbishop a chunk of land in Kent near Kemsing and promised that it would be free of obligations to the king, with the exception of building bridges, fortifications, and fighting against pagans. Now, he did say that he gave the gift, quote, for the love of Almighty God, end quote. But then he quickly added that it was also, quote, for my consecration, which, through the grace of God, I have received from him the same day, end quote. Apparently, Wolfred also gave the king a gold ring, which seems to have been partial payment. Overall, this looks a hell of a lot like a bribe, doesn't it? And it was the perfect kind of bribe for Wolfred. The king gave him what he always wanted. Land. Regardless of how it came about, the holy moistening must have made Cholwulf rather pleased. Though any magic that he hoped to gain from the ceremony didn't last, because his reign continued to be plagued by chaos and instability. Central to his problems was the fact that a rival dynasty under a nobleman named Bjornwulf was gaining traction in Mercian and Kentish circles. It's thought that Bjornwolf was maneuvering against Cholwulf, and might even have been seeking out the approval of Archbishop Wolfred, possibly even promising to ally with him on his never-ending quest to obtain the monasteries of Reculver and Minster and Thanet. So things were looking really bad in Mercia. And nine months after his consecration, on the 26th of May, 823, King Cholwulf was deposed, probably in a coup and King Bjornwolf took the throne of Mercia. This is the beginning of what historians call the Bee Dynasty. You see, Anglo-Saxons appear to have named their kids with the same first letter as a sign of their dynasty. Bjornwolf had a brother named Binna, two sons, Bertfrith and Bertric, and it's thought that Baldred of Kent might have also been a kinsman of his. So just like Conewolf and his family all had a bunch of sea names, and they were part of the Sea Dynasty, Bjornwolf is often referred to as the start of the B dynasty. Though scholars suspect that the B dynasty might actually have been a branch of the primary Mercian dynasty that stretched all the way back to Pibba, father of Penda. These families were large, branching, and ruthless. What could go wrong? Now I should point out one more thing that occurred at around this point in history that remains an intriguing mystery. An unfinished bit of business left by Emperor Conewulf when he died about two years ago was his war with the Welsh. The campaign had begun, but it hadn't been finished. And the question is raised, who followed in Conewulf's footsteps? We know that someone invaded Wales, but was it his brother, Cholwulf? Or was it the new king of Mercia, Bjornwulf? Well, there's a split among scholars. Stenton says that it was Cholwulf who completed his brother's Welsh campaign, and that he destroyed the fortress at Degenwy at the mouth of the Conway, and brought Powys under his control. And within a generation, the last descendant of the ancient kings of Powys left for Rome, exhausted from age and misery under the Mercians. 
However, Kirby points out that that dating isn't precise, and it's unlikely that he would have been deposed after a big military success like that. So Kirby says it was probably Bjornwolf, who was known to be a very active and aggressive ruler, taking part in at least two wars that we know about shortly after taking the throne. Personally, I agree with Kirby. King Cholwulf's reign was marked by instability, and he was deposed remarkably quickly after he took power. Not only that, but it looks like part of Kent broke away before he was forced from the throne. His rule looks like an abject failure from the outside, and I find it hard to believe that he would have had so many problems at home and be deposed so quickly if he had a record of being astoundingly successful in the field. Regardless of who did it, though, I think Stenton is correct when he said that the capture of Degenwy was the last major accomplishment of the Mercian kingdom. Even though King Bjornwolf was recognized in Mercia, Essex, Middlesex, and Kent, the might of Mercia was already in decline. For example, immediately after King Cholwulf was deposed, an unnamed East Anglian king, who was probably Athelstan, the king who started minting his own coins, well, he returned and reasserted their independence from Mercia. East Anglia was breaking away. Now, it's been a while since we've heard about East Anglia acting as a power player on the British stage. They burst into view in 616 when King Raidwald fought at the Battle of the River Idol, and he killed King Aethelfrith of Northumbria. But they have been nearly silent in our story ever since. However, it's a foolish thing to underestimate them, and Mercia is going to learn that fact the hard way next week. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And we have all kinds of social networks, and they all offer something different. And right now, I'm going to highlight Twitter. You absolutely should join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And the advantage of Twitter is that it's a lot more personal. You'll get a sense of what I'm up to, what I'm writing about. So if you'd like to know more about what's going on in the show on a kind of day-to-day basis, then Twitter is the place to go. So at British Podcast. You should check it out. It's fun. And of course, there are other communities, and I'll highlight those in later weeks. And you can find all of them at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. As I was writing this episode, I was wondering who would win in a bare-knuckle, no-holds-barred fight between Archbishop Wilfred and St. Wilfred. You know, Wilfred versus Wilfred. At the very least, it would be fun to see. In the red corner, we have a nobleman who hails from Northumbria, where he was raised in the court of King Oswiu and was a favorite of Queen Aenflaed. He studied in Lindisfarne, Canterbury, Gaul, and Rome. But don't let his education fool you. Wilfred isn't a shy, bookish pacifist. When he got into a conflict with the king of Northumbria, Wilfred raised his own army. When he was evicted from the kingdom, he went straight to the Pope for support. When he was shipwrecked in Sussex, he fought to the death against a bunch of pagans like it was the Thunderdome. In exile, he allied with the pagan king of Wessex and accepted lands that were obtained through genocide. He used that alliance to extort an endorsement from the Archbishop of Canterbury and then whined to the Pope when it didn't work out. Please welcome to the ring the friend to popes and pagans alike, the man who really puts the sin in saint, the Narc of Northumbria, your friend and mine, St. Wilfred of York. In the blue corner, we have a wealthy nobleman who hails from Middlesex. This archbishop is known for his focus on reform and the expansion of Canterbury. 
He acquired vast estates and gifts from the Emperor of Mercia, and even minted coins in his own name. While many in Britain were wary of the Emperor, Wolfred launched fearlessly into open conflict with him over land rights, and attempted to build a power block that began to look like his own kingdom. The conflict spun out of control, and when the Emperor's son was murdered, fingers were pointed at Wolfred. But the Archbishop wasn't done yet. He overruled two popes, and when he was ousted from power, he forged legal documents. Please welcome to the ring, the real estate reprobate, the maniac from Middlesex, the Dark Ages Donald Trump, Archbishop Wolfred of Canterbury. I don't know. I think HBO would charge 60 bucks just to let you watch that.